Good morning. It's good to be with you here this morning. Uh, my name is Brooke Beyer. I'm an elder here at Faith, and then we've been attending, me and my family have been attending Faith for about a little over six years now. I have two things that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, the first is an invitation, and then I'm going to read the scripture for today's passage. So let's start with the invitation. We here at Faith wholeheartedly believe in the power of prayer. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And we are entering a new chapter of the story that God is writing here at Faith. At the first of 2024, we will begin a search for a person who God wants to replace. Pastor Steve as our lead pastor. This is a tangible, a real opportunity for us to learn to walk by faith. One of the primary ways that we express our faith is through fervent prayer in Jesus' name. So therefore, the elders are calling. We're inviting you uh, to gather with us on Sunday afternoon, November 12th, to seek God for faith's future. We will enter into God's presence through worship and prayer. We will pray together in groups, ask God to prepare us for the next chapter he is writing to provide faith's next lead pastor, and to lead us into fruitful ministry into the future. So please join us if you are able. For the sermon today, I will be reading Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. It says, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. This is God's word. Thanks, Brooke. Some of you are aware, probably not, I hope not all of you, but some of you are aware that much of social media is obsessed with the question about how much men think about the Roman Empire. <laughs> Were you aware of this? 
I ha actually had to get a TikTok account to verify it, but it, it's true. You can find hundreds of videos where a woman is asking her man, her husband, her boy, she says, how often do you think of the Roman Empire? And sometimes they'll say, I, I never think of the Roman Empire. But others will say, oh, I don't think of it too often, you know, three or four times a week. And the woman will just start laughing and laughing and say, why do you think about the Roman Empire? They'll say, swords, glory, Julius Caesar, Marcus Aurelius, Rhodes, all this. And it's just, it's just amazing. I asked my army, uh, I forgot a friend in the army, I said, Jeremy, how often do you think of the Roman Empire? He said, I think of my head on Russell Crowe's body at least twice a day. <laughs> I think he was kidding. I hope he was kidding. That's... That's from the gladiator. But if you read the Gospels or you read the book of Acts, you will be forced to think about the Roman Empire. Specifically, the Romans were the ones that refined and really kind of made an art form out of crucifixion in order to uh, inflict the maximum amount of pain, maximum amount of humiliation as a deterrent to crime they would crucify a criminal in all sorts of grotesque ways, sometimes hundreds at a time. They would crucify them on a cross and leave them there to die ultimately by asphyxiation. And the body would be left to be eaten by the birds and insects. Acts 2 makes reference to the Romans when Peter addresses the crowd on the day of Pentecost. He says this, Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of of lawless men. Those lawless men were the Romans. They were the Roman soldiers. Luke 23 told us that Pilate, three times he said, this man is innocent. He's, Jesus has done nothing worthy of death. But it says that he delivered Jesus over to the Romans to carry out the will of the Jewish authorities and the crowds who wanted him crucified. <clears throat> Did you notice how Peter framed it up? The will of the Jewish people and the crucifixion by the Romans. He said that Jesus was, quote, delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Peter believed that the animosity of the Jews and the brutality of the Romans fell within the sovereignty of God. Their motives, their actions brought about the will of God, namely that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, would pay for the sin of the world. Unbeknownst to them, they carried out the will of God. And so early in the book of Acts, it establishes that God is sovereign over the Roman Empire, period. God was not intimidated by them, when they killed his son, he didn't wring his hands and say, what's plan B? No, God, God carried out his plans through the motives and the actions of sinful men. 
the Romans, unbeknownst to them, carried out the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And the rest of the book of Acts illustrates that Jesus' disciples live with this knowledge. Jesus' disciples live their lives as if God is sovereign. Why? Because he is sovereign. And today's passage tells us how Paul did that. He lived his life believing that God was sovereign. He was in prison and uh, nothing was under his control, but he believed that God was sovereign. Let me remind you of the context. The Holy Spirit had made clear to Paul. He said, Paul, I want you to go first to Jerusalem against the wishes of, of many people. I want you to go first to Jerusalem and then I want you to go to Rome. And since Jesus was a disciple, he was a follower, since his highest priority was to do the will of God, he said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Paul lived his life to to do the will of God as best he understood it. And last week we saw that while Paul was imprisoned in Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and gave him this assurance in Acts 23, 11. It says, the following night, the Lord stood by him, by Peter, or, or by Paul, and said, take courage For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so he said, this is going to happen, Paul. You're going to testify all the way in the the heart of the Roman Empire. It's going to happen. And so uh, this doesn't mean that Paul is passive. He says, well, God's going to do this, so it doesn't matter what I say, what I think, what I do. No, he engaged his will, and as we'll see, he made some decisions that would ensure that he got to Rome. And, uh, but if you've read these chapters, you know that some wild things happened to Paul. There were assassination plots. There were seemingly endless trials and interrogations. There was a shipwreck. There was a snake bite. But through it all, Paul lived as if God were sovereign over the Jewish authorities. He was sovereign over the Roman Empire. He was sovereign over the wind and the waves. He was even sovereign over a poisonous snake. He lived this way because what? Because God was sovereign over all these things. Now, we're going to have to think carefully about what we mean when we say God is sovereign over the Roman Empire and over everything in our lives. When I talk about the sovereignty of God this morning, I'm not talking it in some high theoretical, technical sense. I'm talking about it in a very practical, street-level sense. If God is sovereign, that means that nothing in your life, none of your circumstances, escape God's notice, that nothing that happens to you is beyond his reach. That means that nothing is out of his control, that God is just thinking, how did this happen? Now, it means that in a very practical sense, God knows, God sees, God's care, God cares, and God's grace is available. Another way to say it is that uh, God works all things together for our good and his glory. God is moving all of history toward his goal of redeeming a people for himself and ultimately making all things new. Again, this doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what we do. No, we are responsible. We engage our wills. We, we, we make decisions as best we understand the will of God. And it doesn't mean that we can always understand how God is sovereign. It certainly doesn't mean that we have to figure out 
how the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humans fits together before we can walk by faith. But it does mean that God is moving all of history toward his purposes. Therefore, he can be trusted. Well, let's consider first how Paul lived his life as if God were sovereign, and then we'll consider how we might do the same. First of all, Paul's discipleship and the sovereignty of God. And again, so we're talking about this is a very, very uh, distinct way that disciples, followers of Christ, live our lives. And so Paul had been arrested, in, uh, and he was being held in Caesarea, and two years had passed, okay? Two years, house arrest in Caesarea. He'd survived one assassination plot already, he's about to face another. And here Luke tells us that there was a new governor in Judea, and so the, the capital of Judea was in Caesarea, and Festus was his name, and, and to go to, go to uh, he decided to go down to Jerusalem to uh, meet the authorities there. Verse 1, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, <clears throat> he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So he wanted to become acquainted to, with the Jewish authorities, but once he was there, we read that they exploited this opportunity. They asked him for a favor. They wanted to, to uh, once again have bring face-to-face accusations against Paul before the Jewish council. Verse 2, And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And so apparently they thought it was more likely that they could ambush a small Roman guard and kill Paul as opposed to storm a prison in Caesarea and kill him. But something about their request apparently didn't sit quite right with Festus. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And so once again, this this assassination plot, the last time it was thwarted because uh, Paul's nephew overheard a conversation about this plot. There were these 40 men that weren't going to eat or drink until Paul was dead. We think, well, that's a coincidence. Well, no, that's the sovereignty of God. Here, once again, Paul, Paul's life is saved, this time by a Roman governor named Festus. Verse 6, after he, Festus, stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. <clears throat> when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charge many and serious charges against him that they could not prove one of luke's objectives in this 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 uh these chapters is to show that christianity is not a threat to a stable society and so these charges that are brought against him is that paul if this christian if this christian faith faith isn't shut down there's going to be anarchy everywhere. And Luke is saying that just isn't the case. He points out here <clears throat> that uh, these many and serious charges 
could not be substantiated. They couldn't prove them. And we can infer what these charges were by what Paul says next in verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. The accusation uh, that, that uh, the accusation against the law of the Jews was probably that Paul went around the Roman Empire uh, teaching that Jews no longer have to obey the law, that, that, that Paul was advocating lawlessness when it came to the old covenant. But in 24.14, Paul says this, this shocking, perhaps to us, thing. He says in verse 24.14, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets. He said, I believe everything that the law and the prophets teach. Now, he believed that they were fulfilled in Christ, which the Jewish authorities didn't. He said, I believe it all, and I believe that it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The second accusation was against the temple. They had accused Paul of desecrating the temple by bringing a Gentile therein. Uh, it was true that he was seen with an Ephesian man named Trophimus, but he had never brought him into the temple. And so that accusation was just simply false. And the third accusation was the most serious, but it also provided uh, a strategic opportunity for Paul. And this charge against Caesar was probably that since Paul was teaching that Jesus is king, that ultimately Christianity would end up as, uh, as David Gooding said, that it would, it would foment civil unrest designed eventually to lead to a popular uprising against Roman imperialism. You say Caesar's king, we say Jesus is king, and so we're going to take, take matters into our hands and, there's, and, and foment this uprising. Later in Acts 25, down in verse 26, Festus tells King Agrippa, it's all these great names in Acts, he tells King Agrippa that in his opinion, Paul is innocent of these charges. He says, I have found, found that he had done nothing deserving of death. <clears throat> but we read in verse 9, Festus, which, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? And so he wanted to do the Jews a favor. It was in his political interest to keep the Jews sub, sub, submissive to the Roman Empire. And so if he could do them a favor, perhaps they'd remain calm and he could, he could have a peaceful reign. But notice that Festus doesn't command Paul, you're going, down, you're going up to Jerusalem and you're going to be tried before me there. He asks him if he wants to be tried. And he reserves... The, the, the right for himself to be the one who determined uh, whether he was innocent or guilty. So it wasn't asking, do you want, can I just hand you over to the Jews? So there's some protections here. But again, apparently he sensed that the Jewish authorities had ulterior motives. So he asks, but Paul said, I'm already where I need to be tried. He said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. And so <clears throat> the irony of ironies here 
is that being in Roman custody was the safest place for Paul to be at that time, okay? And he recognized that. Again, Paul's mind, God has told me I'm going to go to Jews, so I'm not going to get in this situation where I might be handed over to the Jewish authorities. And so he asserts his Roman citizenship and said, I'm a Roman, I deserve to be tried in a Roman, in Caesar's tribunal. And in a very bold move, Paul says this, verse 11, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Paul says, I'm not asking for any mercy here. I just want justice. If If I've done anything that I'm guilty of, punish me. If I've done something worthy of death, kill me. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. You know, in our legal system, sometimes a decision can be made at a court at a lower level, and it can be appealed up to a higher level, say from a a district to a federal federal level. And the similar thing was happening happening here. In Roman system, a, a citizen could appeal to Caesar for a ruling. And you were taking a risk in doing that, though, because Caesar's kings can be fickle. They can be brutal. The king of the time was Nero, who would become one of the most brutal uh, emperors in, in that era in, in Rome. <clears throat> Remember, Paul was under no illusions that the Romans had this virtue, that they would, that they would uh, definitely show him justice. After all, the Romans were the one who, ones who had crucified the innocent Son of God. But Paul knew that God wanted him to go to Rome, and appealing to Caesar would get him there. And we aren't told exactly what Paul was thinking, but Luke makes clear that God made good on his assurance, Paul, you will testify uh, for me in Rome. He made good on that assurance through the Roman legal system. God was was sovereign. Verse 12, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And so, Festus commits himself, Paul, you're going to go to Rome. Unbeknownst to him, Festus fulfills the will of God. He carries out the will of God. Paul would testify in Rome. So it turns out that Festus was sovereign in Judea. Caesar was sovereign in the Roman Empire. But God was sovereign, period. If God wanted Paul to go to Rome, he would get to Rome. Paul would see to it. And for his part, Paul's words and actions suggest that he understood that very well. Again, he didn't didn't go passive. He engaged his will, and he did things that would also promote going to to Rome. And so that's something of a case study. I want us to think about our discipleship and the sovereignty of God. 
And again, to, to clarify, I don't want to uh, beat this drum too hard, but we're talking here about disciples. We're not just saying, don't worry, God's sovereign, everything's going to work out. We're talking about how disciples, how followers of Jesus think about and live their lives in light of the sovereignty of God. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, you understand that Jesus died for you, therefore you want to live for him. And so for you, you don't just want to do your will, your deepest desire is to do the will of God. And so, so the, that changes the questions you ask when you find yourself in difficult situations. And our, our tendency, and there's nothing wrong with asking these questions, but our tendency is to primarily ask questions like, God, why did you let this happen? If you're so strong and if you love me so much, why did this happen? And again, there's nothing wrong with asking those questions. Those questions are, are wrestled with in different places in Scripture, but we aren't guaranteed an answer to those questions. We just aren't. Perhaps a better question if you're a disciple of Jesus is, you're in this difficult situation and you say, God, what is your will here? I mean, what, what is the will of God? What, what do you want me to do in this situation? And once you discern his will, then you ask the sovereign God of the universe for grace to be able to do his will. And then you walk into your days by faith. Again, Jesus' disciples live their lives as if God is sovereign, because he is. Let me give you a fresh example of what I'm, I'm trying to say. And, uh, you know, we all have uh, demanding weeks, and we all do. And this past week was a, a very demanding week for me spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And the temptation was to become overwhelmed and anxious. And early in the week, honestly, I, I was wondering, am I going to make it to Sunday? I am, I'm glad to say. I'm here, I'm standing right here. But I, I wonder, am I gonna, I'm even going to make it. But it was actually humorous when I stopped and thought about it for about 30 seconds. I said, wait a minute. I'm going to stand up and talk about how God is sovereign over, the, over the, the Roman Empire. Do I not believe God is sovereign over my schedule? Do I not believe that these things that God has obviously put into my week, these amazing opportunities to represent Him, these amazing opportunities to, to live as a son, as a child of God, do I not believe that, he, that he's sovereign over these things? And, and I concluded that, no, surely he'll give me the grace to do his will. Long story short, I said, I'm just going to ask for enough grace today. It's like, give me this day my daily bread. Give me this day my grace with grace I need for today. Tomorrow's going to have enough trouble. I ask you for the grace to make it through today. So I prayed. I have the blessing of having a praying wife. Brenda prayed for me. Quite a few of you prayed for me. Sometimes I text or, or make a phone call. I say, hey, could you give me some help here? Give me some advice. Help me out. What, what I need to, to do. What I need, need to say. And then I walked into each day by faith, just believing God's got this. He really does. I'm not just trying to do the best I can with what I have in my own resources. I'm going to walk into each day by faith. 
And I have to tell you that even though it was one of, one of the most demanding weeks that I, I've had in, in recent memory, it was also one of the most satisfying. I can't tell you how, how much I experienced God this week and his grace. So, so satisfying. God showed me that it's actually possible to live my life as if God were sovereign, as if he were sovereign, because he is. And so what is the most challenging situation in your life right now? I mean, what seems the most daunting to you? What, what part of your life seems the most out of control? And you wonder, am I even going to make it in this area of my life? Is this situation even, even going to, is it going to do me in? Is it going to destroy my faith? It could be a relationship. It could be a, could be a decision that you're facing. It could have to do with the, the, the wars that rage in Israel and Gaza and Ukraine. could have to do with all sorts of different things. But, but what is it in your mind that's uppermost that, that you find the most daunting? Can you ask the question, hoping to discern, or would you ask the question, God, what is your will here? I'm assuming, God, you don't want me to solve all these problems before I have peace and before I can walk with you. What, what is your will in this situation? And then once you discern that will, uh, use ordinary means to seek all the grace you need to do his will. And I say ordinary means. Sometimes we want God to zap it and just fix the situation. Most commonly, we employ ordinary means. We pray. We listen to God through scripture. We get counsel from other people. We, we request, request prayer from other people. And then we walk by faith and keep our eyes open and look for the grace that we, we need at just the right time. Believing that nothing in your life is beyond God's authority. You know, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, um, be reminded that Jesus lived his life with the conviction that his heavenly father was sovereign. He believed not only that it was the will of God for him to go to the cross, he believed that God would raise him from the dead. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus fearlessly pursued the will of God, that enduring the, namely that enduring the cross as a sufficient sacrifice for our sins was what he, was his assignment on earth. And he believed that God would give him the grace to go to the cross, and he believed that God would raise him up on the third day. As we fix our eyes on Jesus at the Lord's Supper, keep in mind that issue in your life that you find daunting, where you need to walk by faith and trust in the sovereignty of God. 
Let the bread remind you that his body was broken for us. Let the cup remind you that his, his blood was spilled for us. And so if you trust in Jesus alone to, to pay for your sin, if you trust in him, uh, join us at the Lord's table. If you need to slip out and get the, the elements in the, the foyer, uh, feel free to do that at this time. Uh, let's take a, a few moments of silence and then we will eat and drink together. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he broke the bread, he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup, he gave it to them, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we pray that this week we might fix our eyes on Jesus. We pray, God, that we would not um, fix our eyes on ourselves or on this world, but we would remember how he ran his race and that we might do accordingly. We pray, God, that you would uh, fill our hearts with, with faith and our wills, that we might believe that you're sovereign and that you are not blind to what's happening in our lives. You're not deaf to our prayers. But, God, you see, you hear, you care. And so teach us to walk by faith. We, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you have all power, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us? Oh. Uh -huh.